Hello, Great Minds. It's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History, as we get ready to cover the many women in Philip II's life, what I'm sure will be a true tapestry of his many relatives. So welcome to the show, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Mr. DGMH, otherwise known as Zach DeBacco, and today we are going to look into that piece that I had to cut from the main episode, The Four Wives of King Philip II of Spain, and maybe another bit or two. And today, I have a fun little cocktail that is inspired by Philip's relationship with his four wives. Well, kind of. As I mentioned, Philip outlived all four of his wives. Honestly, it makes one wonder. Was Philip cursed? A closet serial killer? I jest, of course. Philip's wives' lives came to an end mostly as a result of complications from giving birth to their cousins. But today's drink is a Black Widow cocktail. After experiencing so much death in his life, Philip spent much of his reign in black, a widower for the majority of his reign. Now this tequila drink is a little more complicated than the last one. Sticking again with El Padrino Silver, because it's what I had, you are going to need a few ingredients. This one calls for tequila, lime, blackberries, basil, agave nectar, and, of course, a way to muddle some fruit. First, muddle, that is mash up, blackberries and basil in your shaker, then mix in one and a half shots of tequila, fresh fresh squeezed, fresh squeezed lime, fresh squeezed lime, fresh squeezed, Add some fresh squeezed lime, one teaspoon of agave nectar, shake, strain, and then garnish with a blackberry and some basil. And then, of course, enjoy. So let's get to it. In the main episode, I really wanted to cover four moments in Philip's life that help explain a few key parts of the larger story. First, covering his four wives will give us the best potential answer as to why he wore black most of his reign. It will also address the Habsburg thing, and finally, it will get one important factor out of the way. Why did he marry four times? Philip's reign was one of near-continuous loss. I am not sure that that loss really crippled him throughout his reign. For that, we can blame gout. But there's no avoiding the fact that these four marriages drove Philip's reign in unique, albeit often useless, directions. So let's start at the beginning with his first marriage to Maria Manuela of Portugal. And in case you didn't know it or missed it from the main episode, that quote Habsburg thing is chins. Well, chins and incest. Chincest? Oh, I don't know, but first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. So right off the bat, things are not great in terms of inbreeding. Short version, Maria and Philip were what's called double first cousins. Now, I get that those listeners that do not study a lot of history might not be able to conceptualize this reality with relative ease. To be double first cousins, not just first cousins, means that you share a lot of the same blood. In short, Philip and Maria's grandmothers, Juana and Maria respectively, were both daughters of great mine Isabella of Castile and her turd of a husband, Ferdinand. It's not that it's really that simple, but that is by far the worst of it. Not the worst of it for today, but for now. Honestly, I really can't think of a great way to quickly type out the fullness of this fucked up pedigree, so for the podcast and speaking, that's really the best I got. But I want to focus on the wives as much as possible in this Chaser episode. So as to Maria, well, she wed Philip in 1543 when he was just Prince of the Astorias, the official title of the Spanish heir apparent. Maria herself was the heir presumptive to the throne of Portugal until 1535 and was only 13 when she married Philip. 
The wedding was said to be one of the most opulent in Spanish history, but Maria would never be Queen of Spain. Instead, her place in this story is that she bore Philip his first son, Carlos, who played a pretty unique, I guess shitty role, in our story on Philip II. Maria died from complications related to childbirth just four days later. She was only 17 when she died. According to Parker, quote, her death left Philip devastated and he retired to a monastery to mourn. He did not write the emperor, his father, for an entire month, as in Philip's own words, the anguish and regret caused by such a great loss did not allow me to do so. At first I questioned how genuine his grief was, but I must agree with Parker that there is really no evidence to suggest that it wasn't. And Philip did certainly love in his life. Life. But the death of his young bride, although very hard on him, was a blow softened by the survival of his son and heir. But that sentiment would die hard in a tower, and of course the void left in his heart would be filled by another relative. Moving on to Philip's second wife, yet another match made by his father, Prince Philip was wed to Mary Tudor. Mary was 11 years Philip's senior, and of course a not-so-distant cousin. Mary Tudor was the daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, a.k.a. Philip's Aunt Cathy, a.k.a. the daughter of Isabella of Castile, a.k.a. the one that Cullen always talks about when he is really trying to discuss Isabella of Castile. So, you know, Catherine of Aragon was Philip's aunt, she was the sister of both of Philip's grandmothers, and she was the mother of his wife, perfectly normal. Mary's new position as Queen of Protestant England was a particularly important move for Catholic Spain, as Mary herself was Catholic. Charles V, that is Philip's father, Father had pushed aggressively for the match, regardless of whether or not Philip was excited at the prospects of marrying his much older cousin. And as always, I think it was age and not the, you know, relative nature of their relations that was the issue. But ever the obedient son, he acquiesced. The English were sure to ensure their sovereignty in the matter, immediately working to exclude Philip from ever practically coming into any real control of England. After some meandering around his territories, Philip sluggishly progressed towards England and his wedding, where he wed Mary on July 25th, 1554. In a truly strange sentence to read in a biography written by a historian, Parker notes that the pair's first sexual encounter left an older Mary, quote, exhausted and she did not appear in public again for four days. Why? Why write that? To show some sort of age difference? I don't fucking know, but you know what? I had to read it, so I figured you should have to hear it. Of course, this is history's infamous Bloody Mary, the dread fiend of Protestant propaganda who, like Philip and our latest Margaret in the margins, was promoted as a Catholic zealot that brutalized her Protestant subjects. Not entirely true, but not entirely false. I mean, a lot of people fucking burned at the stake under her reign. She and Philip would have gladly thrust Catholicism onto a reluctant England. But I should note that Mary's legacy, again like Philip and his half-sisters, is up to the story you believe. In fact, many Catholics in England rejoiced at the return of a Catholic monarch to the English throne. And a Catholic ally in England was the real trophy prize for Philip II. But Mary, now in her late 30s, was unlikely to, and never did, produce an heir. Still, Mary seemed determined to ensure some semblance of power over England for her husband, but that wouldn't matter too much. Just two years after his Spanish kingship began, Philip's English kingship came to an end with Mary's death in 1558. Her death and the historical hate writing that followed, like in Fox's Book of Martyrs, would cement her as the enemy of English freedom and the Protestant faith. Philip, however, was quick to marry again in hopes of promptly ending his father's leftover wars with France. 
marrying for a third time. So let's move to marriage number three. With this one, he married a much younger bride. His ministers remarked of his next bride that, quote, His majesty will have no cause to complain that he has been forced to marry an ugly old woman. Poor Mary. So much hate cast her way and so much more to say about her. I mean, she's bloody fucking Mary, Tudor Queen of England, but that's really all I have time for for today. Finally, in 1559, Philip married the first monarch of his kingship and his choosing. This time, he wed the daughter of great mind Catherine de Medici, Elizabeth de Valois, also known as Elizabeth of France. As we have seen in both Philip and Catherine's story, Philip did not shy away from inserting himself in the French wars of religion, which tormented the reigns of Catherine and her Valois sons. This marriage was meant to solidify the Peace of Cateau-Cambrai that formally brought an end to the Italian wars between Charles and Valois France which I guess Philip had no real desire to continue. But Philip, now 32, which is my age by the way, seemed to be completely smitten with his young wife, who was just 14 when they wed. Not long after their meeting, Philip was said to have given up all his mistresses out of a sense of love and devotion. What is interesting is that Elizabeth was actually originally betrothed to Philip's son Carlos, but instead ended up his stepmother, which, as we have discussed on the show, was good news for her. Elizabeth gave birth to two surviving children, both daughters, but died during her fourth pregnancy. Bringing us to wife number four, Anna of Austria, and just when you thought the incest couldn't get any fucking worse, Anna of Austria was Philip's sororal niece and paternal cousin, and they had five children. Married in 1570, their decade-long marriage would be Philip's last, and it was Anna that finally gave Philip the son that would rule his kingdoms upon his death. Of her five children, only one, Philip, would survive to adulthood. Although initially hesitant about the marriage, it seems the pair truly came to love one another, truly becoming a family, as opposed to already being, you know, family. Turning back to Jeffrey Parker, he notes, quote, When Philip did leave her side, they seemed to have exchanged letters once or twice per week. One Venetian ambassador noted, which is, by the way, what Venetian ambassadors seem to do in this period, note things, quote, His Majesty visits the Queen three times a day, in the morning before hearing Mass, during the day before he starts work, and at night as they prepare to sleep. The King loves his wife most tenderly and seldom leaves her side. As I mentioned, the pair had several children, and Anna actually cared for and raised the daughters of Philip. Philip's previous marriage, whom, by the way, Philip called, quote, you the elder and you the younger. Still, this was a dark and lonely time in Philip's life, as the 1570s, like the 1560s, would be plagued with so much loss. Two of his sons by Anna would die, he would lose a half-brother and a cherished nephew, and in 1580 he lost his beloved Anna, during childbirth to their daughter Maria. Over the next three years, he would lose another son, Diego, leaving only little Philip to inherit the throne. And just a year later, in 1583, little Maria died as well. The sad reality is that he was away when much of this death happened, and when he returned from his military campaigns in Portugal, he was presented with his lost children, Diego and Maria. After learning all this, it is perfectly understandable why he wrote you and you, saying, quote, God alone knows how lonely I feel. It is really quite sad. Of course, it's extra sad for Philip II. I mean, really, for every wife lost, it's a fallen cousin. For every niece lost, a broken-hearted uncle and husband. So four wives. Interestingly, none of them seem to be the biggest actors in Philip's kingship, unlike what we have seen with other stories on the show. 
His first two wives died prior to his ascension to the throne. Mary Tudor was, of course, a loyal partner, but I'm not sure Philip truly saw her in the same way. His third and fourth wives were truly loved, but tragically lost. So why do this? Why tell the story of all four of his wives? I think that examining all this loss tells a part of the story of our widower king. Wearing black for much of his reign, he spent the entirety of his Spanish kingship experiencing loss. Although none of his wives seem to have the same degree of influence or even agency as his mother-slash-second cousin Isabella of Portugal did, they illustrate for us another key part of the story, the fucking disturbing level of incestuous marriage that took place in early modern Spain. Most of us probably already knew that, but some of us, I'm sure, are a little shocked right now. In the end, each marriage was a pragmatic decision meant to either reaffirm dynastic alliances or create new ones. Now, Mary Tudor was certainly an exception to that point. She was Queen of England in her own right. Philip's power in England relied entirely on his wife's support. Had she survived, this power couple would have likely left an epic footprint on Western Europe as champions of the Counter-Reformation. But she didn't survive, and things did not go well for Philip when dealing with England after that. But was that really the end for Philip? Did he just decide to never marry again and live his life in solitude? Well, actually, yes, just not at this point, as Philip did almost marry a fifth time. So let's take a second to look at Sister Margarita. As, in all of this loss and sorrow, Philip rejoiced in the news that his sister, the recently widowed Holy Roman Empress Maria, arrived in Spain, and her arrival would hopefully fill a void in Philip's life. So I almost had you there, didn't I? I mean, come on, I totally had some of you thinking that Philip II contemplated marrying or was about to marry his sister. Nope, I guess marrying your sister is just the Habsburg line. So don't worry, no sister, just another niece. So who is this mystery bride? Well, that would be Margarita, one of the younger daughters of Maria, the widow and dowager empress of the Holy Roman Empire. What's funny is that Philip was actually contemplating marrying for a fifth time, and Margarita was basically the only Habsburg of marrying age out there. And Philip outright refused to bring shame to his dynasty by marrying outside the Habsburg line. But Mr. DGMH, where does that sister point come in? Well, both surprisingly and unsurprisingly, Margarita hated the idea of marrying Philip, her 58-year-old uncle, for multiple reasons. One, she had put forward the idea of becoming a nun, and two, I know it's hard to believe, but she probably thought the idea was fucking disgusting. Because, oh, you know, it fucking was. She even wrote Philip saying, quote, I find it impossible to marry because I have taken a vow to become a nun and gave God my word that I will become his bride. That's right, Margarita sooner took an oath of celibacy for the rest of her life than marry her aged uncle. In a moment that Parker calls spiritual blackmail, worthy of quote Philip himself, Margarita took up holy orders, and so Sister Margarita, sometimes called Margarita of the Cross, to Philip's great dismay, was born. Philip responded to this epic disappointment, and I'm sure embarrassment, with what essentially dumbs down to a doctor's note, promoting that, quote, he had prudently decided to marry neither the Infanta Margarita nor anyone else because according to the advice of his doctors, he might live several more years if he remains single. But if he marries, they do not give him more than a year. Gotta love when the doctors tell you to live that bachelor life. But come on, that's fucking hilarious. Basically, Philip says, go, Margarita, become a nun. It's totally fine. I really shouldn't be marrying anyway for my health. Here, Philip sounds more like a student making an excuse for not doing their homework or failing a test. As a nun, Margarita would continue to be of great Catholic influence at the Spanish court alongside her mother and the young bride of the next king, Philip, who was actually Sister Margarita's sister. Yes, continuing the trend of his predecessors, Philip III was wed to his first cousin. Now, I have to say that that's a lot of incest for one episode, but it's the best I got. So let's wrap this one up. 
For a quick rating of the drink, this one is fancy, fun, and fucking fantastic. The Black Widow has a few ingredients which can add up fast, but I actually had everything to make this one at home already. Well, that's a lie. I didn't have agave nectar, but I did have honey, and it doesn't seem to have changed the taste all that much. But if you make it and it made a difference, then feel free to tell me I'm nuts. But either way, it does taste great, even if the idea of it is a little weird. It's somewhere between a blackberry mojito and a blackberry margarita, of course with basil. A strange middle ground and an odd mix, as if the two drinks were related in some way, but the offspring they produced was quite confusing, not quite as expected, and not quite right. Sounds like the perfect drink for the Habsburgs. But basil is the unsung hero of the cocktail world. It's delicious in every drink you put it in. And really, it's much better than mint. So in short, taste 5 points, price 4 points, return 4 points. Not bad, 13 out of 18 points, 5 crowns, and definitely worth a try. And there I mean the drink. The drink is definitely worth a try. Well, that's it. If you enjoyed this episode of Drinks with Great Minds in History, then please consider leaving the show a great, hopefully, five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at DGMH History, and be sure to join in the conversation over at the DGMH Facebook group. Plenty of fun chats and memes shared there. If you are all caught up and looking for even more DGMH, or you just love the show, then you should consider supporting the show over at the DGMH Patreon page. There, listeners can get access to even more great content, including bonus psych and shots conversations, pre-game chats, Extra Moments with Mr. DGMH, and now Cullen Chats China, where Cullen chats with me about China's rich history that I know next to nothing about. So as we end this episode, I have to say it honestly gave me a lot of perspective on Philip II. As always, I could have said a lot more about his children, who had some interesting stories of their own. Hell, I would have loved to have spent more time on Isabella of Portugal, but there just isn't a lot out there on her. So as we end this round of The Chaser, let us raise a glass to Philip's wives. They had to marry their cousin, their uncle, and more. Even if it was expected and accepted, it still had to be like the very chins that their marriages begot, a little fucked up for everyone involved. And as always, if making fun of willing participants in incest upsets you in any way, I sincerely, honestly, truly, genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, say to you, frankly, my dear, I don't give a fuck. Cheers. <laughs>